Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Another episode of Imagine Publicity on Air. We're sponsored part partner sponsored by Wild Blue Press and Imagine Publicity. This podcast covers a variety of topics for you who are interested in current events, history, and books. I especially enjoy bringing attention to authors and books that you may not have heard of. Yet. Sometimes they're only popular regionally and just need a little bump to that I can provide through exposing to a national listening audience. And who am I? I'm the host, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. We're a boutique social media management company that works with individuals, companies, or nonprofits looking for assistance with their social media presence. Not only do I offer full services, but also training to those who prefer to personally handle their own accounts. I appreciate your feedback. Please keep the suggestions coming. Um, You know, we have a lot of future episodes and we want to give you what you want to listen to. So shoot me an email at Delilah at imaginepublicity.com or you can go through my website contact form at imaginepublicity.com. Well, this brings us to today. Every true crime junkie in America is aware of the Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer. Season one laid the backdrop of the murder of Teresa Hallback and the prosecution and conviction of Stephen Avery and his nephew, Brandon, Brendan Dassey. But season two sort of, I think, tells the other side of the story, where a noted wrongful conviction attorney, Kathleen Zellner, got involved. She basically dismantled all the evidence or the lack of the evidence in the Avery case and exposed some very big surprises. And in his latest book published by Wild Blue Press, Wrecking Crew, Demolishing the Case Against Stephen Avery, John Farrick details much of what uh, Zellner uncovered in Making a Murderer. Welcome aboard, John. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Can you give us a little bit of your background as far as, you know, what, what you've been doing that got you involved in this case in the first place? Sure. I was, uh, I was, um, I have about, uh, let's see, uh, 20, 25 years experience as, uh, as a journalist. I grew up uh, in Illinois, and, uh, and I spent a number of years out in Omaha, Nebraska, working for, uh, for the newspaper out there. And then it was uh, end of uh, 
2012, so actually six years ago, is when I uh, moved uh, back to uh, Wisconsin. I had been there before and uh, ended up on the investigative team for the, for the USA Today Network. And, uh, and it was through that, uh, that work, through that experience, that uh, after Making a Murder came out, that um, my editors had asked me to really try to dig into this case and uh, just kind of go where the reporting, you know, where, where my investigative skills and instincts took me. And uh, so it, uh, I really spent uh, a good chunk of uh, 2016 and 2017 really dissecting the Teresa Halbach murder case and, uh, and really uh, going through the court files on the, on the case and also doing my own research as far as trying to get a better understanding of uh, Manitowoc County and the culture over there in the Sheriff's Department. Uh, because I really wanted to look at the case from a standpoint of was the Sheriff's Department actually smart enough and intelligent enough to solve the Teresa Halbach case in, in the record fashion that they did, given the complexity of the case that, you know, her body hadn't, hadn't been discovered at the, at the time of her uh, disappearance and just some other oddities as far as some of the evidence uh, that, that ultimately turned up in the case and led to Stephen Avery's uh, conviction and that of Brendan Dassey as well. Well, I think that what I found that was very fascinating about season one and, and the start of or the background of this case was the fact that Stephen Avery had been wrongfully convicted and spent 18 years in jail for a crime that he didn't commit. And he was very close to to receiving a thirty six million dollar settlement. And how that how do you think all of that played into, you know, the next part of his of his story? Well, that's 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 an interesting point, Delilah. And, and just again to re, you know, refresh our listeners here, as far as the context and the timing of, of everything, the month of October of 2005 was a really um, stressful month for the people that worked actually at the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department. You had pretty much all of the high-ranking officials, from Sheriff Kenny Peterson to uh, Detective Jim Link to Sergeant Andy Colburn to a number of other individuals that uh, listeners will remember from uh, making a murder, um, such as uh, Gene Couchet, the uh, individual that drew the uh, uh, the sketch of the of the rapist uh, that uh, that uh, looked similar to Steve Avery, but wasn't Steve Avery. It was really Gregory Allen. So again, the month of October was a really incredibly stressful month, and 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 the other thing that had to be just galling and infuriating for the sheriff's officials is that when they were going to the law office in Mantuac to give their lawsuit depositions in Steve Avery's $36 million lawsuit, who happened to be sitting at the table, you know, across from them amongst this room full of lawyers, and it's Stephen Avery. And in this situation, you know, he's got the upper hand. He's the one that's on, on, on the right side, and they're on the wrong side. So, so you have those factors at play. And again, this is the sheriff's department that was outright accused of corruption and framing him to begin with, and, and the evidence was pretty clear that they did. So isn't it also a possibility that, that if things were going to go worse for them as a result of this lawsuit and, and the possibility that some of these individuals would have to pay out of their own pocket any lawsuit uh, settlement because uh, 
uh, the insurance company for the Manitowoc County government really was uh, um, had stepped out of the case and had argued that uh, that they were not uh, liable for these. So you had uh, a lot of uh, a lot of things at play shortly um, shortly before Teresa Hallbike disappeared and uh, and and before Steve Avery was arrested for the crime. So it's, it's it's right to say that a lot of the original players, when Stephen Avery was wrongfully convicted the first time, were also involved in this second case, correct? Yeah, very much so, very much so. You okay. had, uh, again, Kenny Peterson uh, was involved in, uh, was instrumental in carrying out the uh, the arrest of Steve Avery, Stephen Avery in 1985. 20 years later, he actually is the sheriff of Manitowoc County. And, uh, and again, you also had another people, number of other people, too, that were still in the sheriff's department or were very loyal to the recently retired sheriff, Tom Kasorek, who had been in office for 20-some years and was also one of the key defendants uh, whose, uh, whose family wealth and riches were on the line if this lawsuit continued. And Kasorik was just a matter of days um, days out as far as that he was actually going to have to get pulled in the court and give his own deposition in the case. But that never happened. Uh, his deposition got canceled shortly after Teresa Hallbike disappeared and, uh, and after Steve Avery was arrested uh, in real quick fashion for the crime. So it's, it, it would be reasonable to say that, that this whole – law enforcement agencies in this county kind of had it out for him to begin with. It, it, it's very reasonable to look at it that way, of course. You know, whether you can prove it or not is another thing, but it certainly looks that way. Right. And, and, and there's kind of sentiment and in, in that feeling, you know, among some in Manitowoc County that, uh, that uh, and I'm sure that's probably true in, in other parts of the country too, but where there's you know, one family or two families in particular that seem to be singled out for ostracism or ridicule or uh, the wrath of the local police department. And that certainly seemed to be the case over in uh, in Mantua County, Wisconsin, Delilah. Well, I think the other thing that came out of season one, and I'm just kind of trying to lay a little bit of background here, just in case there's one person out there that isn't familiar with this. But I think the... The other thing that came out of season one was the Brendan Dassey interrogation and how that went. And, you know, we might preface that in saying that Brendan was intellectually challenged, 16-year-old, as far as I know, had never really been in any trouble before. But the way that the the interrogation was was handled um, just seemed very wrong. What, What are your what's your take on that? I mean, it seems to be uh, the case where the two investigators on the on that interview seemed to be doing everything they could uh, to manipulate him and kind of feed him the facts of the case, but do it in a way where it wasn't like your old school um, um, police brutality type of interrogation where somebody's you know being beaten you know or or being you know, hit with a switch or something like that. This was uh, this was really more psychological manipulation of of, uh, of the individual, where uh, it's pretty clear. And the other, this is the other thing. It, it 
the version of events that the police were trying to feed him, I mean, defies logic. I mean, the notion that somehow that Steve Avery was a premeditated monster and killer and that he lured Teresa Halbach into his trailer and that he's in the middle of a brutal sexual assault of her having her tied up to his bedpost and uh, and is in the process of killing her. And then there's a knock on his door and it's his nephew um, bringing him um, some extra envelopes, mail that got put in the wrong mailbox. The notion that somehow that this would really happen, that Avery's going to walk down the hallway and see who's at the door and then notice it's his nephew, Brendan, and then invite him inside to participate in a premeditated attack like this. I mean, it's just crazy. And, and, and logical listeners on the show should be able to realize you know, this is nonsense. So again, but that was the story pretty much that the police were feeding Brendan Dassey. And uh, he eventually uh, goes along and agrees with, with some of their assertions. And again, I've seen this in other cases around the country. So, so people that don't know anything about false confessions or really don't uh, have a grasp of how they, how they unfold, they would just look at Brendan Dassey's case um, individually and think, well, because he said it, it must be true. But, but I've had numerous other cases around the country where individuals that uh, are of a lower mental intellect or, or have diminished capacity, they're often very prone and very vulnerable to these types of interviews and interrogations. And mentally for them, they just, they just convince themselves that there's no way out, that they're trapped in that interview room, and that they they really believe that they just go along and say whatever the police or the detectives tell them to say, or want them to say that they actually believe that they get to go home, you know, at the end of the uh, interview and stuff like that. And uh, and obviously in Brendan's case, as people may remember, I mean, after he got done with his interview, the first thing he asked them is if he could like go back to seventh or eighth period in school. So again, um, this is clearly someone that. Uh, that, uh, that was just going along and didn't realize the extent of uh, you know what his statements were doing, that uh, that he was really helping the police, and that they were in the they they were there to manipulate him um, because they really wanted to take Steve Avery down, and he could be one of Avery's alibi witnesses as as the case was moving forward. Well, in his testimony, pretty much, you know, brought the hammer down on Avery because. The jury apparently believed he was there, and this is what he saw. And, you know, one thing I've got to say is through all of this, uh, whether anybody out there believes Avery did it or didn't do it really, in my opinion, isn't the issue. I think the issue behind all of this is that we've gotten another look inside the justice system and how wrongful convictions come about Um and it's I know you've done a lot of research and written another book about wrongful convictions. I've worked with clients um, who have handled wrongful convictions and exonerations. And, and that, you know, that's that's the greatest feeling is when you can exonerate someone who has spent time behind bars. And most most of these people were looking, you know, 10, 20, 30 years behind bars for things that they didn't commit. So it's, it's an issue I feel needs to be discussed and discussed so that the general public is aware of it even more so. Um, so we, we kind of fast forward to season two. And I think, you know, the opening of your book, it was a lot that I didn't 
pick up in the documentary was Teresa Hallback's background. Uh, there were a lot of things that you exposed in the book that really hadn't been brought out in the documentary. Would you like to just kind of go over some of these things so we get a better feel of how possibly she was in some precarious situations and not necessarily with Stephen Avery? Right, and that's one of the things that uh, that Kathleen Zellner and her law firm had, you know, really tried to do some research. And again, it wasn't to, uh, um, you know, besmirch Teresa Halbach or anybody else's reputation. It was just to do the do the investigative legwork that really was never done the first time around, Delilah, with the case. And 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 most of the time, you know, as far as good good police departments and experienced investigators, one of the things that they do is uh, what's known as victimology, which is study the background of the individual that, uh, you know, disappeared and was murdered. Uh, and because oftentimes that leads to determining who the real killer is and, and figuring that out in quick fashion. Um, because most of the time people are killed by somebody they know, and not always. But, uh, but again, with, with Holbeck's case, uh, she was, she was also involved with a lot of, uh, you know, adult, you know, sexually explicit type of, uh, you know, photography that uh, that she was doing at her uh, at the photo studio in Green Bay, along with the other gentleman that that ran the place, and uh, and uh, and and this also became an issue right around the time that she died. She got pulled into a into a civil lawsuit involving a a couple that uh, that were going through a divorce. It was a messy divorce, and she had taken nude photography or nude photographs of them together posed at the photo studio before their marriage fell apart and then the lawsuit was involving you know getting access to these photographs so shortly around the time that she disappeared that was one of the first things the police did was they were looking around snooping around in her in her bedroom trying to find these photographs uh, because again there was a possibility that uh, that maybe these photographs and maybe this divorce had something to do with her disappearance because she wound up carrying on, you know, and had a sexual relationship with the uh, with the with the guy um, that was involved in the divorce and stuff. So just uh, there was all these factors going on at the time that, that Teresa Halbach disappeared, and these are and were legitimate uh, avenues for the police, and certainly for Zellner, you know, who's starting the case from from ground zero and has a knack, as she's pointed out before. She says that she solved. You know, more murder cases, more homicide cases than than many police detectives, and it's true. So, so when she's doing her investigation, she's trying to be thorough and try to determine whether or not um, some of the business uh, prospects that Teresa Halbeck was advertising and soliciting for online and on the internet that that maybe some uh, um, weirdo or, or pervert or, or stranger um, had something to do with her disappearance. Right. So, I mean, there were many other avenues that investigators could have taken rather than just um, putting the target on Avery's back. I mean, again, whether he did it or not isn't the question here. It's it's the lack of investigating other avenues and looking at other suspects, um, which kind of brings me to my next question is let's talk about the suspect pool here. Um, I think that was another thing in what Zellner has done is 
she has widened the pool of suspects that were really never investigated and possibly possibly didn't necessarily tell the truth about what they knew. Right, and uh, and you had a number of individuals that uh, that to this day, you know, are are probably completely innocent, had nothing to do with the crime. But there's also a possibility that those same individuals don't want to cooperate with Downer because they may have had a role as far as uh, um, planting evidence or or uh, or or more moving the vehicle, the Rav Four, onto the Avery property. Um, so there's 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 those situations as well, but uh, but yeah, there was there was another there was a number of individuals that certainly draw suspicion and uh, raise eyebrows, and uh, you know some of that starts back with uh, back in uh, in Calumet County where Teresa Halbeck had shared a place uh, shared a farmhouse that was owned by her family. But uh, she shared it with another guy, and uh, yeah, I think one lived upstairs, and she lived downstairs, I believe, or the other way around. But uh, but anyway, um, this is out in the middle of the country, and uh, and she disappeared on Halloween, so it's a Monday, and it's really not till Thursday, the third, that uh, that she gets reported missing. And the obvious question is, well, what was going on? This is during the work week. Um, Teresa had made no plans to go on a vacation. There was no there was no reason to believe she was you know gone uh, out of state for a photo assignment or something like that. The obvious question is why isn't the guy that uh, that lived with her um, reporting her missing and or call, calling her family to let them know that she's missing? And along those lines, um, Teresa's ex boyfriend uh, basically stepped up to the forefront at the beginning of the case. And uh, and there were there were issues that apparently he had hidden it and didn't reveal to the police. He just identified himself as a concerned friend. But you come to find out later on that they had dated um, pretty seriously for about five years, and they broke up. And that Hallback, that Teresa really didn't want anything to do with him anymore, uh, to the point where uh, there was a wedding that she was going to be at uh, that she didn't want him. Uh, you know, to be around and stuff. So, um, but nonetheless, you had him volunteering to take the lead on overseeing the search party efforts. Um, he and uh, the other guy uh, wind up giving the camera to uh, to the to Pam Sturm and her daughter, and they're the ones that are going to show up on Saturday morning and go straight to the Avery Salvage Yard and just walk through the Avery Salvage Yard. And immediately find the vehicle, um, and it's covered with tree branches. I mean, just all kinds of weird uh, stuff there and stuff like that. So again, um, you had those individuals. You also had another guy that uh, that was on Teresa's route that uh, that was very uncooperative, a very, an older gentleman, mind you, but uh, but a fellow that lived uh, out in rural Manitowoc County that was really strange and uh, and uh, didn't want to uh, cooperate with the police. So when they went to interview him in the first couple of days after Teresa disappeared. So, um, and again, the ex-boyfriend that, or, that I talked about earlier that was involved in the nude photography that she got uh, involved in a relationship with. So again, you had easily, you know, half a dozen other people that were in Teresa's life that were, uh, you know, logical people, persons of interest, suspects. And that's not counting the people back in Manitowoc County, including Steve Avery, you know, including people in his 
family and immediate circle that uh, that and also warranted being looked looked at. Let's go into that next because I think again there's a few players right in his immediate family that that would fit into this suspect pool that. You know, I, I think the importance of the suspect pool is not just to look at other people as possibility of, of committing this crime, but it also rules these people out. But if you've not properly investigated any of them, then you're not ruling them in or out. So it's all kind of stuck in limbo there. But I think... Uh, it's very interesting, and I, you know, maybe we need to do a little short family tree here, where, you know, the Dassey brothers, who are the sons of Stephen's sister, am, am I playing right. this correct? And then yep, her right. mm-hmm. second or third husband—I don't know which number husband he is—Scott right. Tadish. Um, go into a little bit of how you know these people in this pool here could could possibly have something to do with it. Well, you had uh again the Avery family uh used the uh the the auto trader uh photography services uh because they were you know, they had over 4,000 vehicles and they were oftentimes trying to sell some of the vehicles that they had uh on their property. And uh auto trader slash Teresa Halbach was a regular out at the uh, the Avery property, so again they had familiarity with her, um, and it also made sense for the police to, to to look at them and focus in on them because of the fact that she had disappeared, you know, from that uh, you know from Avery Road. So it was logical that you'd want to look at uh, different people that lived out there, and uh, and so you had uh, Steve Avery, you had uh, he had two other brothers that uh, worked at the salvage yard, and then. Uh, and then his sister had uh, four children that were teenagers uh, or uh, as old as around 20 years old at the time, but that they were staying there or living there. And uh, so it made sense that, uh, that, that, that they would be looked at as well. And the other thing that kind of would, I would say, would jump out from an investigative standpoint is that you had one of those uh, individuals, one of Barb's sons that, uh, that had... Uh, come forward and basically said that that he saw Teresa Hallback and was watching her from the distance, you know, around the, the same time frame that she disappeared. Uh so that should uh um that in my mind, you know, places him as a as a as a witness or a possible suspect because uh again, uh he's uh he's he's pretty much come forward and uh, is giving a statement that uh, that he's observing her. Whereas you kinda know that uh that uh just based on the time frame that Brendan, the 16-year-old nephew, the one who's ultimately going to give a confession, uh, I would say a false confession uh, to, the, to participating in the crime. I mean, he would have been at school at that time frame or riding the bus home along with one of his other brothers. So that pretty much takes out two of the brothers. And then the oldest brother of the four, um, I believe, was at, uh, was at work that day and or pretty much was staying at his girlfriend's house at that point in time. So he was, even though he was technically still at the family house, he really wasn't around very often and stuff like that. So, but you had the, uh, the other nephew of Steve Avery, 19 year old Bobby Dassey, who maintained that he was watching, uh, you know, from the distance, you know, watching out, uh, out the window, you know, as Teresa Hallbeck pulled up to the Avery road, 
that Monday afternoon around uh, 2.30ish or so then. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about Bobby Dassey a little more in depth. What in the initial investigation, how did, how did that get handled as far as the investigators interrogation of Bobby Dassey? How was that handled in your opinion? And, and he, well, he eventually yeah. did testify, correct? Correct. And, uh, I think the one thing that that kind of sticks out at me is that uh that they they seem to go out of their way to constantly point out to him or remind him that they're not looking at him or don't believe that uh that uh that he's involved in the crime and it's clear that but yet they have no reason to make that type of assertion or or, or conclusion in fact one would actually say it's the opposite that that they should have looked at him from the get-go as a logical, you know, perpetrator based on the fact that he was much closer in age to Teresa Hallbuck and or, and again, the fact that he was watching out the window should have been kind of a red flag for the police to really zero in on and then try to understand whether his statements that he was going to give uh, made sense or whether they were um, um, just stories to try to get himself out of trouble and stuff like that. So, but uh but again with uh with, with Bobby Dass he, he was he was nineteen years old, he stayed at home and uh and um he worked the overnight shift, the late night shift at one of the local uh, factories in Mantua County and uh and he when he's interviewed by them, um he he, he talks about uh how he had um had was driving on uh that he left uh, the property shortly after Halbach was there to go deer hunting, he claimed. And he, he said this was his first time going deer hunting for the season. And uh, and he ultimately mentions that he had uh, passed on the highway an individual that uh, that would later become his uh, stepfather, and that's that Scott Tottich that you had mentioned uh, earlier, Delilah. So, um, But I thought that it was really odd, just some of the behaviors involving him and the fact that the police – really were doing limited investigation investigative techniques as far as with him and his property, even though this is a 40 acre property and the police were out there for over a week or so, they, they really didn't uh, go into his garage, for example, until the very, very end of the case. By that point in time, Avery had already been arrested for the crime. So it was just kind of a, kind of a walk through to see what was out there, but you had odd behavior by him such as uh, the fact that he had uh, um, gone out about three or four days after Hallbuck disappeared, and by the time the police were starting to zero in on the Avery property, he, he went out and uh, and found a dead deer on the side of the road and then hung it up in his garage, which, again, would be a perfect thing to do if the garage may have been the location as far as where her body was, was cut up or mutilated. And... Um, you know, it'll be a perfect cover to kind of uh, throw the police off and stuff because if they see a bunch of blood around and, you know, they see a deer hanging up from the from the ceiling, you know, their first thoughts are probably going to be, well, blood equals dead deer when uh, when it could have just been a good cover-up uh, for the crime. Well, and I think, uh, and it may have been just because technology maybe wasn't as good at the, at the time of the initial investigation compared to Zellner's investigation, but 
doing a forensic examination of his computer. Let's talk about that. I mean, I don't know. Bobby Dassey is kind of one of my favorite suspects as far as not being investigated far enough by any means. And I think this is a person who exhibits some behaviors that could or could not develop into something really dangerous. And whether there's an intervention needed or whether there's some kind of therapy needed for a person like this, it's kind of like you can't allow this type of personality to escalate. But talk about some of the things that were uncovered about Bobby Dassey and, and, and then go into the timeline differences that, you know, from what he claims he saw he did to what Kathleen Zellner was able to pull together. Yeah, we had, uh, so it's, it's February and, um, and, uh, it's when Brendan Dassey gets, uh, arrested for, uh, for the crime as well. And uh, shortly thereafter, the police are going to get a search warrant to obtain the computer that was at the Dassey house. Um, and that computer was pretty much used exclusively by Bobby Dassey. And, um, and that computer, there's going to be some interesting things that are found on it, but there's also going to be interesting, very interesting things that are not found on that computer. And that's the fact that, uh, that uh, that Zellner and her experts have been able to determine that there were several different periods uh, around the time frame uh, leading up to uh, you know the crime here, the murder. But there were several different periods of time where where the computer was reformatted or information was just completely wiped off the hard drive. And this is actually information that uh, that one of Barb's. Uh, um, um, I'm trying to remember. I think it's a. It, this would have been one of the half brothers of uh, of, um, of Bobby Dassey had come forward and given a given an affidavit along those lines. But uh, but basically, that uh, that Barb had hired some type of computer person to uh, to reformat uh, and destroy you know um, evidence information that was probably incriminating regarding the case, but that this was wiped off the computer hard drive. And, uh, and so the question obviously comes up right now then, Delilah, why, why would this happen to begin with? You know, why was, why was Barb concerned and what was on the computer that would prompt her to take those types of actions? So, and, uh, and based on the information that Zellner and her computer forensic expert, uh, Gary Hunt were able to recover from those other periods that, uh, hadn't been wiped out completely. Um, there was a no- number of incriminating and very disturbing uh, um, images and keyword searches that uh, that were basically taking place around the time that only Bobby Dassey was home at the house when he was, you know, locked up inside the bedroom when nobody else was around. And uh, and that was uh, that was some of these keyword searches that that dealt with uh, really looking at. Uh, um, disgusting, uh, hardcore, violent pornography as far as just mutilation of bodies, you know, um, you know, people that have been, you know, drowned or hit by cars. Um, those were the type of keyword searches that, uh, that were taking place, you know, with this computer that appeared that only Bobby Dassey had access to. Um, so there was this belief that, that Bobby Dassey 
was involved in, in this type of uh, fantasy life, as one of Zellner's experts, I think Ann Burgess from the East Coast, has been able to determine. And, uh, and this, this fantasy life had basically, you know, was, was, was consuming him and fuel, fueling his, his desires and his demons inside of his head. And, uh, and some of these individuals, these images, apparently looked very similar, you know, to what Teresa Halbeck looked like. And, and later on, we learn um, much more recently that, uh, that there had also been, I guess, a couple of, uh, you know, folders that were created on that computer, one for Steve Avery, I think one for Teresa Halbeck, and uh, I think a third one was labeled DNA for, like, you know, DNA evidence. And again, this is uh, this is on the Bobby Dassey computer. This is not the Steve Avery computer. His computer was examined by the police, and they found no evidence at all of any type of violent, uh, you know, pornography. In fact, I guess he didn't even really use his computer that much. So again, the uh, all this points back to Bobby Dassey and the question of, you know, what was going through his mind, you know, what was uh, what was he thinking about in the days and weeks leading up to. Teresa's Hallbuck's disappearance on the same day that we know, based on his own statement, that he's watching her, you know, from the distance outside of his window. And then he gives some of these unbelievable stories about how he's watching her, then he decides to go take a shower, and then he's going to go deer hunting, which again kind of defies logic that if you're going to go deer hunting outside in Wisconsin, you know, why are you going to take a shower before you do that? That's usually something you would do afterwards. Um, and then you put him, you know, in his in his van, you know, driving up Highway 147, and he claims that uh, that he's going to pass his uh, future stepfather at the same time. And, again, the area where uh, that, uh, that he claimed that they passed each other really, um, according to Zellner, uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't seem to make much sense. And uh, in that, in the, based on her analysis of his telephone calls, she basically thinks that he was in the same general area, that she could put him in the same general area where, where Teresa probably disappeared, which is off of uh, one of the county highways over there. Well, you know, it's, it's old school police policing that this person had the motive and he had the opportunity. And it's just mind-boggling to me why they didn't hone in a little bit closer to either rule him in or rule him out as a suspect. And because it seems to me like a lot of the ingredients are there that would, would be a very viable suspect. And, and they definitely should have gone in, into that a lot deeper. Um, so let's let's kind of compare theories I think that's always interesting. Um, compare the theory of law enforcement and prosecutors as compared to Zellner's theory based on what she has found. Well, you would have had law enforcement basically convincing themselves that Steve and Avery, and there was a lot, this is unbelievable, but it's, it's true. You actually had a lot of police officers in Manitowoc County and also even with the state of Wisconsin. And I know there was at least one regional FBI agent that didn't believe that he was innocent for the rape, even though the DNA evidence showed that he was. In fact, you had uh, that Jean Couchet who did the sketches basically uh, testifying that, uh, you know, that a lot of, uh, police basically thought that maybe that DNA was mishandled or, or whatever. But so you had a lot of police that even though 99% of the public 
realize Avery was a was a truly wrongfully convicted man for the rape. Um, you still had a lot of police that that, that refused to believe that, um, which tells you, I mean, what kind of people we're dealing with as far as that they don't even, you know, um, understand, you know, or comprehend DNA evidence. But uh, but they they a lot of them were convinced that Steve Avery was you know was one of the worst monsters around, even though the evidence in his background really didn't show that. I mean, he had a few issues when he was uh, in his early 20s that got him in trouble, as people from making a murder would remember. But but nothing, you know, nothing that uh, that uh, that pointed to him being a you know sadistic monster or that he was going around you know raping and killing multiple people. But yet that was the belief and that was the mindset that that the police had programmed into their own heads at the time that Hallbuck disappeared. And I think part of that was fueled by the fact that they also really wanted to get him. So, so I think the fact that they really wanted to get him, then coupled with their own belief that Steve Avery is a monster and that uh, and that uh, that he would be the first person that would do this type of crime, I think that that's kind of how the case came together. The problem they had then was that a lot of the they the absence of evidence and, and absence of uh, you know anything really pointing to Steve Avery as far as the crime happening in his trailer or in the garage really kind of threw them for a loop and, uh, and made it hard to spin some of these unbelievable stories that were, you know, told to the, the public and the community before the case actually went to trial. So again, the, the, he was basically convicted on a theory, you know, or a tale, I would say, you know, that was invented by the police and the prosecutor that, uh, that Hallbuck was tied up, you know, screaming for her life, um, begging for her life um, in his uh, in his bedroom trailer, um, and that she was stabbed in there, and then that he would have manually carried her down the hallway, you know, and uh, and taken her outside um, about ten fifteen feet away, and then put her on the ground in his uh, garage, his detached garage, where she would have been shot with a uh, you know with uh, with a shotgun, and uh, and then. That now that she's dead, that he would have moved her right behind the garage and stoked his fire, and uh, and and threw her into basically a bonfire on Halloween night, and that uh, that her body pretty much disintegrated except for a small portion of her bones. The uh, the biggest problem though with that, I haven't talked about this yet, but uh, and it's it's probably one of the sometimes could be the most overlooked uh, facts of the case. It's one the prosecution really doesn't want to talk about, but that's the fact that some of her bones were not found in Steve Avery's burn barrel, but they were found about 60 yards away, and that was at the burn barrel that was used commonly used by Bobby Dassey to uh, to uh, uh, cut up uh, you know his uh, his dead deer and just other uh, other other animals and stuff like that. So her bones were actually found in the Bobby Dassey burn barrel and not on the Avery property. Now, you know, going along those lines, as we talked about, but yeah, you know, Zellner's theory is that is that basically Bobby Dassey's obsessions with this violent, uh, um, um, terrible pornography was really taking over his life, and that he that he wanted to act on that, and that he probably followed uh, who's watching, stalking uh, Teresa Hallbuck that day, which would explain why he was watching her mannerisms and, uh, and was able to give a real good detailed description to the police as far as what she was wearing. 
compared to somebody that was just looking out the window at the mailman or or letter carrier um and really didn't didn't you know make any observations but in this case he gave a very detailed description of her so the belief is that he hopped in his vehicle shortly after she left uh, the Avery property and that he followed her for a short distance and was able to flag her down and she would do what was pretty common around that area um for for photography, and that was what was known as hustle shots, which is a situation, you know, where somebody either calls her or, or flags her down or, or just basically wants her to take a, a photo of something that they're selling usually. And uh, that was a way for her to make extra money with Auto Trader. So, again, if she had familiarity with Bobby Dassey or any of the Averys or Dasseys, it would, she, he would not have been a stranger. He, went, he would not have immediately you know, put her on guard as far as that this is somebody dangerous or that my life's going to be, you know, um, threatened here, uh, you know, here shortly. So, again, the belief is, from Zellner's standpoint, that Bobby Dassey, uh, you know, waves her down and that she pulls over on the side of the road and uh, that they pull up the road uh, um, a little secluded area that's called Cuss Road where there's kind of a a cul-de-sac at the end of it. And that when she was opening the back door for her RAV4 to get out her photography equipment, that that's basically when Bobby attacked her and probably knocked her unconscious. Um, and at that point in time, he may have dragged her off into the woods over there and uh, and assaulted her. But eventually the belief is that, that she was unconscious, that, and, and there's certainly blood marks on her vehicle that prove that. But again, Zellner's, Zellner's belief is that she was attacked from behind and she was attacked with her back door open for the RAV4. And that explains why the blood is in the back of the vehicle, not because Steve Avery like lifted her dead body up and uh, hoisted her into the vehicle after she was already dead by his garage. Um, so, again, completely different areas, completely different lo- locations as far as where the crime may have happened. And Zellner's belief is that, is that she was taken back to uh, the, uh, the property but it was really that she was put inside of the Dassey uh, garage and that that's where her body was probably cut up and that she was later taken out to the quarries not that far away and uh, and that's where her body was burned in one of those burn barrels. And, and okay, let's take, it a, let's take it another avenue. Let's talk a little bit about Scott Taddish, who is the husband of Stephen's sister, Barb, what what did we find out about him? He wasn't such a stellar guy either, right? No, he's a real mean. I mean, a real mean and nasty individual. In fact, I mean, I mean, when you compare his background and his lifestyle to Steve Avery, he makes Steve Avery look like a, a you know a lamb or a sheep. You know, he's just a real ferocious monster who constantly flies off the handle and has even done that in this case since making a murder came out. Actually, he went on Twitter, uh, I think uh, around that time and called Zellner. I mean, the worst names, I'm not even going to repeat them here on the show. I mean, people could track them down or they're probably already aware of it, but it's, it's some of the same things that I put in my book where, where uh, he, where he gets on the phone with Avery and is, is talking about wanting to put him in the ground and he's going to bury him, you know, under, under the dirt and stuff. But uh, but Scott Tottage has had a long um, long history of abusing women, being violent to women, even attacking his own mother, um, and numerous arrests in the 1990s, especially 
you know, for uh, for showing up at his uh, ex-girlfriend's uh, place in the middle of the night and uh, threatening her and then beating up her boyfriend. Um, and these were just common traits and common behaviors of, of Tadich. And, uh, and again, you put him involved in, in as far as with, with, with Teresa, the, uh, the one thing that he had that everybody else pretty much didn't have was that he worked at, a, at an aluminum foundry, you know, which had uh, very hot, uh, you know, ovens where, where, you know, where, where things were burned there. And, uh, and there was suspicion amongst the people that he worked with that, that perhaps Teresa Halbeck's uh, remains or some of her remains may have been, uh, you know, may have been burned or incinerated at that, uh, at that foundry. And uh, there was even a weird, strange note that was sent to the um, police um, that uh, that talked about uh, that talked about a uh, um, you know an aluminum uh, smelter, and uh, and it was written by somebody that that was believed to be illiterate. And uh, again, the police never really followed up on this at the time of the crime, but uh, but a lot of people at work suspected that maybe the letter was written by Scott Tadich because uh, the letter was signed S I. K I K E Y, which was you know sicky, but I guess Scott Hatch's nickname at work was Skinny. So again, very uh, very close uh, as far as the letters and stuff like that go. And again, he put himself basically out in the same general area where this crime happened by the fact that he skipped work that day on the day of the crime, um, which is another you know issue of concern. He was never interviewed either. Um, Delilah. He was never interviewed about uh, his own, you know, where his own whereabouts on the day of the crime. He was interviewed, you know, weeks later about the case, but it was really uh, not in the context of a suspect, but it was just more or less the police were really trying to see if they could get him to be helpful to them to, 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 uh, to finger, to, to nail Avery as far as uh, the, um, the, the bonfire that was behind his house. So, so Tadich recognized that he could really get himself out of, you know, trouble here and uh, be a helpful witness to the police and the prosecution, you know, if he just kind of went along with the program, you know, and told them that this fire was just unbelievably hot and it was super high, you know, when he was uh, over at, uh, at Barb's place that Halloween evening. Well, all of this conversation leads me to the conclusion that there were a lot of people that, should have been investigated further that very well could have had something to do with this even more so than Stephen Avery. And yet, you know, obviously they honed right in on Avery, forgot about all of this other stuff going on. And what, what's their reaction now that, that Zellner has been able to uncover a lot of this and, and it's been exposed not only through season two, but also through your book. I mean, you've got a lot of good information in there, and I, I really encourage everyone listening that has interest in this case to get a copy of, of Wrecking Crew because you lay it out so well. The details are so well laid out in this case that really make you think about what really happened. No, thanks, Delilah. I really appreciate that. Um, the uh, Since I'm in Illinois now versus you know being in Wisconsin, I'm not you know on the ground so to speak as far as what reaction there is back in Mantua or Mantua County. But I could tell you just based on the 
the few years that I spent up there where I was constantly in Mantua County, you know, as I was writing these hard-hitting investigative stories for the USA Today Network and also being there, you know, in wake of making a murder coming out, typically the, the typically kind of how things worked over there as far as the powerful people in that community, and that would include the police, the sheriff's department, um, city leaders, uh, county officials, and in and, and the business community, kind of all rallied together and kind of put together, you know, kind of a talking points for each other and stuff like that. Uh, in fact, I did a story a couple of years ago how, how they actually uh, had solicited and worked with a, with a public relations firm out of Washington, D.C. that had helped some police departments in, in wake of the, you know, the national outrage that uh, that they came you know over in uh, Ferguson uh, and also th- with the uh, with the uh, with the uh, with the death uh, that one suspicious mysterious death that happened over in Baltimore with the with with the guy over there. So again, there was a there was a PR firm that actually had put together a bunch of talking points, you know, for the Manitowoc County and uh, Calumet County sheriff's officials. We give them advice on how to handle you know the press and the public and kind of what to say. And again, some of these people I've seen, you know, it seems like they're just a bunch of robots. And that tells you that they're programmed to say, you know, what they're saying and stuff like that. They really don't mean it. And one thing that I constantly noticed was that Brad Schimmel, who just got beat a few weeks ago as the Wisconsin Attorney General, who was a complete deadbeat as far as, you know, really looking at the case from the standpoint of uh, Brendan Dassey. When Brendan Dassey's conviction was overturned, um, Schimmel's uh, first thing to do was to fight it. And he spent thousands of thousands of dollars, you know, um, and uh, and staff time trying to do whatever he could to keep um, Brendan Dassey um, in prison, which he ultimately succeeded in, in in doing. Even though there was two federal courts that ruled that Brendan Dassey's conviction should be overturned and thrown out. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how things go now that there's a Democrat in office. It's Scott Walker, who was also another uh, um, individual that really didn't uh, um, look into this case and uh, want to give it uh, a review. Um, I mean, he, uh, he, he got beat uh, as well. So again, there's, there's new people that are going to be in office, whether that'll make a difference remains to be seen. But again, um, there's at least some optimism um, amongst the public that maybe now that there's some new people in the governor's mansion and also in the attorney general's role that, uh, that maybe people will wise up and look at the case again. And that's actually what happened in Nebraska in the case I wrote my last book on back in 2016, the failure of justice book. And that was actually a, a situation where you had Republican conservatives they set up a task force to re-examine the, uh, the original murder of Helen Wilson, where six people went to prison for that crime, three men and three women, under a theory that this, this older woman was, was the victim of a gang rape in her little apartment, uh, when the facts of the case, as an FBI profiler had put together, determined that this was a crime of opportunity, that this was a rapist that was lurking around the community and committed this type of crime. And you had the state of Nebraska took this case. They, they gave it to a new police agency, SAPA task force. And that agency ultimately came up with the theory that, yeah, one person was involved. And lo and behold, they later found that the DNA evidence pointed to one man that had committed this crime and all six of the people were innocent. And even though there was outrage and a lot of confusion, a lot of people back in the town that this happened, after the press conference, after the pardons were given, you know, after the six were set free, the uh, the politicians in in Nebraska 
said the most important thing to them wasn't uh, you know wasn't um, you know keeping keeping this this false narrative going, but it was doing the right thing. And and you got to applaud them for for doing that. And whereas if you look at Scott Walker and Brad Schimmel, their legacy on this case, you know, will always they were just kind of towing the company line and just saying you know, that, uh, that Avery was guilty and Brendan Dassey was guilty. But I know deep down in my heart that those guys don't, they, they don't know the case. They, I mean, they really don't know. They really don't know if Avery is guilty or, or, or Bobby or Brendan Dassey's guilty because they haven't studied the case. Whereas at least in Nebraska, the governor and the attorney general really took the case apart and found the opposite had happened and stuff like that. So again, you have a lot of people in denial back in, in Wisconsin, especially around Manitowoc County, you know, that, uh, that again, I wrote a story a couple of years ago about how the County board chairman a guy named Jim Bray had written an email after making a murder came out. And he actually told the other County officials in the sheriff's department, Hey, don't worry. I got your back. Basically, you know, that this, this, the series is, you know, is, is, you know, is, is garbage. But he also put in his email, he said that he said that the minute he saw Steve Avery being led into the courthouse after he was charged with murder, he said that that left him convinced by looking in Avery's eyes that this was a guilty man. And like I said, these are the kind of people that Manitowoc County keeps selecting and, and putting in the power. And, uh, it's just it's just unfortunate, but that's just the reality that they live in, uh, Delilah. So go figure. Exactly. Well, you know, again, one of the I think the best things that has come out about this is the fact that it's exposing prosecutorial misconduct and corruption in law enforcement agencies and in politics. I mean, it, who knows how far up the chain it, it really goes. And, you know, unfortunately, we don't have time to go into Ken Kratz. That's a whole other show, I think. Right. He right. really needs to be looked at. For April or March or something like that. How's that sound? <laughs> that sounds wonderful. I, I, you know, I would love to delve deep into into him. That's one crazy dude. But anyway, now that we're, we're winding down and running out of time, I, I – Thank you so much for for writing this book and and the companion piece to making a murder in my book. And I think that if anybody can bring justice, I think this is this is the crux of it. It's not so much getting someone exonerated or getting someone convicted. It's getting to the truth. And and that's the only place that true justice is going to be found is in the truth of the evidence. And I applaud Kathleen Zellner for taking this on and doing such a great job. So tell everyone where where can they get a copy of Wrecking Crew and how can, if you want to be contacted, how can people contact you? I was going to say uh, along those lines, and timing is great actually for this because yesterday, last night, uh, Kevin Pierce, uh, who's our narrator, uh, who does a lot of fabulous true crime books uh, as far as uh, on on, on uh, Audible, but he had just uh, released the uh, our uh, our audio version of uh, of Wrecking Crew, so people can go on on Amazon right now and uh, and actually uh, acquire the. Uh, the uh, the audio book version, which I know is going to be super popular because I had had people from around the world actually a lot of people from overseas have been 
contacting me for the last couple of weeks or so since Wrecking Crew came out asking how can they get an audiobook version. So that's out there too. So, But again, short and simple, the easiest way to find Wrecking Crew um, is just to go online, just to go to Amazon, and uh, there's three versions of it. There's the paperback version. There's the, uh, the the Kindle version that people can download, which is probably the most popular, and then now there's the audio audiobook version, and they could also find it as well by just going to wildbluepress.com, um, where where they could find it uh, as well, and they could also look at other collections of books, uh, you know, through through numerous other uh, Wild Blue Press uh, authors as well. So that's the that's the short and simple place to to find it and as far as just uh people need to contact me or want to track me down um i think the easiest way frankly to do that is just to go to uh my website which is johnferrick.com and uh, they could just uh, drop me a line or send me a message that way and stuff like that but uh, again there's i'm also on twitter and that's another popular spot as well so um just uh just track me down or follow me there as well i know i've been picking up a lot of followers ever since uh since uh, Making Murder Part Two came out, uh, and uh, and I know a lot of people around the the world, it, it really surprised me actually, Delilah. But I'd say probably at least thirty to thirty five percent of the initial sales that we got for the book were coming from uh, from United Kingdom and also Australia and New Zealand. There's there's really a lot of worldwide interest in this. That case. is interesting. Wow. Well, good, good. The message is going global. That's what you want. Again, thanks a lot, John, for being with us. And um, until next time, please go out there, be safe, but most importantly, be kind to each other. Two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.